Shachtan, an Indo Askelige. Time in Mon Irok the Yen of Chacht Erachor, Agasuligum, a Makan Shaw, Gurfeder Echor, Inuik Kart, Len of Winterfein. Skilti, Fis, Turmi. Tashe Dochretche, Nach Vetok, Ara, Igornamion, and Kestian Echo. Vien Talam again Omgrev, Orkar Nrachtum. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby Podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the Indo-Daily, Putin's war, how the Russian dictator's invasion of Ukraine has woken up sleepy Ireland and complacent Europe. Vladimir Putin is pushing on with his war in Ukraine and has raised fears it could escalate into a full-scale nuclear conflict. If he's become more unhinged in recent years and he's still clearly in command, would he be tempted if they are losing very, very badly to launch some form of even limited nuclear strike? That's how serious it is, I think. With European sanctions biting, could the war in Ukraine result in Putin's downfall? There will be some kind of popular revolution in Russia. You know, these kind of regimes can topple literally overnight. They look very strong one day, but because popular support is very thin, it can collapse very quickly. I'm Fionn Sheen, and today I'll be speaking to John O'Brennan, Jean Monnet Professor of European Integration, about how the war is reshaping Europe. And we speak to a Ukrainian woman living in Dublin about her fears for her family, including her brother who is fighting in the war. Sometimes he would go and wait for the tanks uh, hiding behind the bushes or in the places behind the trees to, to attack the tank. Sometimes he would stay at home and make maybe making those um, Molotov cocktails. So, John O'Brennan, very significant developments not just within Ukraine itself, but how the how the EU uh, has responded, giving arms directly to a country outside of the EU that is under attack from an aggressor. It's a really new, new and significant development in the history of the European Union. It is, Fionn, for sure. I mean, over the first three or four days, I was thinking of that old adage, you know, that in history, nothing happens for decades and then decades happens in a day, literally. Um, what we've seen is just seismically important, both in respect of individual member states like Germany, uh, but for the European Union itself, which about a month ago, five weeks ago, seemed to be disorganized and disunited. Itself, I think that was a factor in encouraging Putin to do what he did. But over the last couple of weeks, it's been astonishing to watch, firstly, the, the unity of the transatlantic partnership, the leadership from Biden and his team, but the Europeans really getting it together, even four or five days before the invasion was launched. There was no expectation that the EU would unite on 
um, uh, sanctions and that Russia would be cut out of the SWIFT system because Germany was um, not particularly in favor. Other member states like Hungary and Cyprus similarly, but they've all come around. And perhaps the most important, I think, is Germany, because what Chancellor Schultz announced at the weekend was this 180 degree turn in German forward policy. After World War II, for understandable reasons, I think, German policy tended towards um, um, what we might broadly call appeasement of Russia. A lot of sensitivity about what the Nazi forces had done in the effort after 1941 to conquer the Soviet Union. But all of that has gone out the window. And that whole era that Angela Merkel presided over is just gone. Um, we're now seeing Germany step up, commit to spending at least 2% of GDP on defense. And that's a very big change from a few weeks ago when there's nobody in the German government saying that they would be sending any weaponry to Ukraine or supporting any of that. But I think the final point is that Putin has actually succeeded in uniting not just the European Union, but NATO and giving a new sense of purpose to both, I would say. Uh, the more important of these developments, as you've highlighted, is definitely this new sort of hard power face of the EU that it's developing. And again, sending arms, sending advanced weapon systems, sending fighter jets even to Ukraine to support the Ukrainian government. If you'd said that to me three or four days ago, I'd have thought you were mad. If the, the Russians can storm through the Ukraine, then the theory is that Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia are effectively next on the list. Well, Putin has been quite explicit about it, Fianon. You may have seen his speech uh, last week when he said not only that Ukraine was a fake country and didn't deserve to exist, he also said that the Baltic states should never have been allowed to leave the Soviet Union. And in fact, the only violence associated with the end of the Soviet Union was in January 1991, when Mikhail Gorbachev, Saint Mikhail Gorbachev, sent in the troops to try and prevent Lithuania becoming independent. 14 people died. And little wonder that the Baltic states, uh, you know, fear. They have this kind of palpable fear of Russian aggression. All their fears have been confirmed with what's happened in Ukraine. And they know, I think, that they were right to seek integration with the European Union and NATO. Uh, but but you're right, the EU is kind of transforming from being this um, purely soft power in the world, what scholars call a normative power, into one that it's not going to become a military superpower, that's for sure, but it is developing these hard power capabilities so that in situations like this, it will be able to respond much more effectively than it has in the past. And within that, Ireland as an EU member state, what do you think of the manner in which we're dancing this fine line between providing support for Ukraine, yet at the same time not providing direct lethal weaponry? Well, I think, simply put, our hypocrisy is exposed. The truth is that we've always, since the late 1940s, we've been free riders. Now, I think those days are truly coming to an end. I think we've got to confront this issue honestly. Our whole defense forces is a mess. We're not even capable of defending ourselves. We know that the Royal Air Force, for example, patrols 
our skies on behalf of the government. We have to call on our European allies to help patrol our waters efficiently and effectively. So we really have to come back, I think, and look at this entire structure of defense uh, and ask about the nature of our neutrality. Because while we're prevaricating and saying that we're not going to be sending lethal weapons of any kind to Ukraine. Other neutral states like Finland and Sweden are doing exactly that. And they have they they are serious neutral players because they invest in their defense structures and in their army in a way that we refuse to. So one of the outcomes of all of this, I'm sure, is that we're going to have to confront this as a society and we're going to have to look at this emotional attachment to neutrality and just ask whether it's worth it, whether we can pursue it any longer. Now, t- t- turning to, to, to Russia, it, it wasn't anticipated on, on their side that this uh, conflict would still be going on at, at this point. It was intended to be a very uh, swift uh, action, but but militarily it, it, it hasn't uh, gone that way. So we're now seeing an impact within Russia itself. The ruble uh, plummeting when when markets markets opened. Uh, do you think that that's a, a direct consequence of the military conflict going on longer than expected, or is it the fact that the the sanctions uh, and the threats of, of further action against Russia are they taking an impact? Well, firstly, I think uh, Putin miscalculated catastrophically here. He thought that the Western response would be divided and fragmented. I think he thought that, you know, even up to a week ago, when both the Americans and the EU were proposing graduated or incremental sanctions, that actually there was a threshold of pain that Russia could take that would mean that the conflict in Ukraine would be settled quickly and everything could get back to normal. Now, that's it's very clear that that is not going to happen, that this is going to take much, much longer if indeed goal can be accomplished at all. Uh, And as you've said, in the meantime, the ruble is plummeting, the value of Russian stocks is going through the floor. And this is before any of the real pain uh, that may be inflicted by US, EU, UK sanctions has actually been experienced. And I think the real worry for Putin is that the Russian people have been out on the streets protesting. On Thursday, uh, just as the invasion happened, there were thousands of people in St. Petersburg and Moscow, almost 2,000 of them arrested. Today in St. Petersburg, police in riot gear dragging some protesters to vans. Since Thursday, thousands of Russians have taken to the streets against the invasion. And yet on Sunday, we saw thousands more of them come out again. So I think popular opinion in Russia is important here. It's very much against the war. And if you combine it with the new ostracization of Russia, where it's become a global sort of pariah in a very rapid period of time, you know, um, Russian aircraft denied access to European airspace, football teams like England and others saying that they will not play Russia in any competition, being thrown out of the Eurovision. FIFA and UEFA have just released a joint statement confirming that Russia are being banned from football. That means the Russian... All those things, I think, will have an impact on Russian popular opinion. But what will really matter will be two things. Body bags coming back from the battlefields in Ukraine and knowledge of that seeping into Russian society. And uh, along with that, the 
financial and economic consequences. I don't think Putin can afford to be in Ukraine for more than about a month. Russia had about $650 billion reserves coming into that. One of the things that the sanctions have done is to to cut off access to at least half of that. And if they're spending the kinds of money that you need to sustain a complex military apparatus in the field for that long, I think within about a month, the Russian economy is going to come under enormous pressure. Inflation is already up around the 60% mark. The ruble is probably going to continue to plummet. So I think you're right, Fionn, you put all these things together, it's going to put immense pressure on the Kremlin if they don't achieve a win on the battlefield within the next week or so. But in the meantime, we do have a effectively a, a dictator with a, a large nuclear arsenal at at the ready. He's Putin has put his country's nuclear forces on on special alert. How concerned should we be about him him pushing the button as such? Well, I think we should be very concerned because uh, if I'm right and that he has really pushed out all kinds of people that used to be close to him. If he's become more unhinged in recent years and he's still clearly in command, would he be tempted if they are losing very, very badly to launch some form of even limited nuclear strike? That's a big question. I'm reminded, um, Fionn, that, that, that there's a wonderful film by an American filmmaker called Earl Morris, The Fog of War. And in it, he interviews Robert McNamara, who was Jack Kennedy's Secretary of Defense. And McNamara is talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he says, in that crisis, Khrushchev, the Russian leader, was absolutely rational. Khrushchev was rational. Kennedy was rational. Kennedy was absolutely rational, and yet we came within a hair's breadth of nuclear war. Rational individuals came that close to total destruction of their societies. And that danger exists today. So that's how serious it is, I think, uh, the, the, the things that Putin sort of referenced obliquely yesterday. I think it will increase the concern of Western countries in particular, uh, but it may also paradoxically hasten his demise because, again, those people around him, if they believe that he may be driven to that extreme, will surely have to think seriously about intervening. I spoke to Victoria, a Ukrainian living in Ireland for 19 years. We have not given her surname to protect her family's identity and safety. Victoria, where are your family from and are you in regular contact with them? My family is 60 kilometers from Kiev, so it is uh, probably as uh, far as Dublin from Limerick. Has the conflict reached where, where they are living uh, so far? Well, there is no active fights, but there is loads of activities going on with all these saboteurs and with um, um, local defense forces, which trying to uh, push them back or to capture them. And we call them territorial defense forces. It's volunteers, basically, who go give their passport to the authorities, receive, if they're lucky, some guns, some ammunitions, and they go and fight. If they can't receive any guns or ammunitions, they just make a Molotov cocktails and they try to suppress the uh, attacks from the um, tanks, from local saboteurs as well. What family members do you have at home? I have my mother, my brother, my grandfather, cousins, nieces. 
the whole lot, you, you you know, who you can imagine I have yeah. there. Yeah. And they, my brother is actively involved with volunteers. So he, he is effectively out patrolling uh, the, yes. the area with the local voluntary force. Yes. Yeah. How, I mean, it's, it's obviously very difficult for you because you're, you're, you're living so so far away. How how has the last few days been for you? Has it been extremely worrying for you? Extremely stressful, extremely worrying, but at the same time, very inspiring. I am so proud of all my people. I'm so proud of all the support we receive from neighboring countries, from EU. So it's you know, on many levels, it's hard. I'm heartbroken. I'm crestfallen. Uh, my heart is bleeding for Ukraine, but I also know from this situation something new and absolutely amazing will be born. And your your family uh, have they been? Uh, are they able to stay to stay safe in in their home, or is there a is there a bomb shelter near them? How how are, uh, what's their security situation? It was relatively safe where they are at the moment, but today I was speaking to my mom, and she thinks that there might be some evacuations. She's not quite sure. They had few very warm nights. At the night is it's the the worst time because the planes flying really low. The, um, we're actually very, very close to that place, Vassil Kiev, which people were talking recently about in the news. That's where the, uh, the airfield is and Russians trying to capture that airfield and they can't. Lots of people dying on both sides, of course, but because we are so close, we have loads of this air activity over our little town. So uh, it's really, really boring. And the sound of those sirens, it's unbelievably haunting and boring and scary. So people have to run and hide in their cellars. If they can't run, they just have, you know, to, to lie on the floor in the rooms where you have no windows. So basically in the apartment buildings, it would be the corridors or they have to spend a night in a, a, night in a bathtub so they will be protected from, from this. But no one knows how it will turn out every next minute. And do they have access to, to food, water, power so far? At the moment, at the moment, everyone is kind of supplied. And it, actually today, my husband and I, we were in contact with the hospital where my mom works. We wanted to help directly the hospital because we know how badly undersupplied they are. And they said that actually financially they're doing well. They received great funds from um, European partners and from Ukrainian government as well. So the on fund level, they are fine. But they miss and lack very important supplies and they can get those supplies into the hospital uh, because the loads of medical providers basically closed and even the, um, not all the pharmacies would be open where they sometimes the nurses would just run to the pharmacy and buy what they need. And at the moment, it's not possible, not always possible. So the only way to rely on those supplies is just to send trucks to the border which is quite far away. Um, so when they go into the Polish border, they can pick up some medical supplies and bring them back. 
So we are actively trying to get involved into this movement, which we thought would be a good cause. And that's what we're doing from our side, from Ireland. And given your brother's age, does, 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 he, have, uh, does he have friends in, in the military? Uh, oh, yes. He was serving in the army and uh, now he has a bit of a problem with his leg. So he can be totally active in this, uh, in the voluntary movement force. Uh, but uh, sometimes he would go and wait for the tanks uh, hiding behind the bushes or in the some places behind the trees to, to attack the tank. Sometimes when his leg is really bad, he would stay at home and make it, may, maybe making those um, Molotov cocktails to bomb the bank. So he's 40 years old, a little bit older than 40 years old. But yeah, he would have loads of friends. All of them would be queuing to give their passports to receive some uh, defense. Um, he actually couldn't get a gun for him himself, so he went barehanded to the fight. Three of the people from their group, the other night, didn't return. They were killed. One of the guys is the father of the three young children. So that's absolutely devastating. And are you and, and your are your mother, are you extremely concerned about him, obviously, every time that he goes out, whether he'll, he'll come home or not? Yeah, my mother doesn't know that he goes to fight in those fights. And we agree that we will not tell her because she has recently been through a lot. Last year she had a stroke and last year she had a few cancer surgeries as well. So she's not very active and this would be very, very scary for her. She wouldn't be able to even probably run and hide if some bombing happens. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to be as supportive as I can from here, being in touch, uh, talking to her, talking to her friends, asking for help and support. What's your view as as somebody living in, in Ireland, so well established here, what's been your view about the support that Ireland has been offering so far? I think it is overwhelming support for many, many levels. Starting from my neighbors who live in me cards and daffodils on my threshold just to express how terrified they are and shocked and disgusted with what is going on. They've been really, really supportive. And then listening on the radio and reading in the news how Ireland tries to get involved, um, opening um, the doors to the refugees. I just don't know how those refugees will be getting into Ireland because uh, unfortunately, Ireland opened the doors to the refugees next day after the flights were seized. So now it's practically, you know, <laughs> at that end for many, many refugees who could find a home in in the houses of Ukrainians living here. I would gladly receive anyone who who needs support, including my mom, including my nieces, but I just can't get them because there is no flights. Um, but otherwise, yeah, I read in the news today that uh, Ireland can't provide any lethal weapons, but they will be very happy to supply, uh, to, to provide medical supplies and blood. And that's really, really heartwarming for me because I just imagine how Irish blood will be mixed with Ukrainian blood. And it's just, uh, it's very inspiring. I am, I am delighted to, to hear that. Uh, but if you want to ask me what more Ireland can do, I'd say just send some Guinness. Guinness is brilliant for blood, for those who will be donating blood. So maybe my word will be heard. Maybe some people, when they hear that uh, someone arriving from Ukraine, maybe they can give them uh, their garden houses 
that would do for a moment. Those people will be happy to anything, especially when I see those moms with the babies uh, going, trying to escape. Yesterday, maybe you heard it, maybe you didn't. Uh, a young mother with a baby in the car trying to make her way out of Ukraine was shot through the head while baby still was screaming on her uh, hands. It's absolutely horrible situation. I, I don't even, you know, describe to you how heartbroken I am here to, about this. Are you are you in any way confident or hopeful that the, that, that the conflict might, might end soon? I think with the right support, it might end soon. Uh, I do hope that more weapons will be provided. Ukrainians are very brave, but obviously you can't fight with the bare hands. You need a little bit more or much more than that. So if the support from EU, from America can keep coming, the Ukrainians will be on the winning side. I'm Fiannan Sheen, and today's Indo-Daily was produced by Mary Carroll, researched by Tabitha Monaghan, and sound designed by John Smith. If you enjoyed the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow, and leave us a review. 